Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are beginning a new series in Lent, and this is part one, The History of Sin. The question for you all to get started with today is, what do you no longer believe that used to be important to you? Enjoy. last Wednesday began the season of Lent, a season where for Christians all around the world for thousands of years we begin to reflect on the fact that we are finite, that from dust we came and to dust we shall return. It's a reminder of our suffering and our brokenness and our figuring it out. It's a journey about going to the cross, not a journey that just Jesus goes on, but a journey for all human beings, that in all of our narratives there is a death and a resurrection. There's the most painful parts of our lives that we have to figure out, and then there is renewal and rebirth. And it is from our crucifixion that we are reborn into something else, that none of us would wish our crucifixions on anybody, but they tend to be the most powerful pieces of our narratives. So as we get into Lent, I want to think about the biggest story of God possible, and it's something that I've been obsessed with for a long time, is that I believe that we live in Los Angeles in 2020, and so often the story that we tell about Jesus doesn't actually work for our lives. That we tell a certain story about who Jesus is and what Jesus did because of what other people told us, but when we actually ask questions about that narrative, it doesn't piece together. And so in this place, we have the luxury of living in the 21st century. We have the luxury of people having access to Bibles that are 500 years old to be able to go back and say, that's not what it always says. And that's true of all kinds of pieces of scripture and Christian tradition. And so today we're going to explore some things, particularly around the idea of sin. Because I don't know about you, my friends, but I grew up in a good evangelical church. So I was a sinner who raised my hand three times a week and came to the altar to confess to the Lord that, yes, I thought of naked women. (laughs) It happened. I'm not joking. In my adolescence, it was terrifying. Amazing, but terrifying. (laughs) Or whatever your thing was. Isn't that a good example, though? That you were a sexual and are a sexual human being who God created. But we were told, oh, God is disgusted by that. Or God doesn't know what to do with that. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not the God of the universe. There's a much bigger narrative out there for us. So to do it, we need to talk about some things. We need to talk about what was given to you. And then what was given to us, and if we can do that, then we need to tell a bigger story, not one of God coming to rescue because the story was a problem, instead of God who is coming to restore because it was all good from the beginning anyways. And then we need to talk about hominids because, you know, we're all human beings. Uh, And then if we can talk about that, then we'll talk about Augustine and then Anseld and then Peter Abelard. And if we can do that, then we'll talk about Calvin. It's going to geek out today, my friends. Then we're going to talk about what the fuck is wrong with Tulip. Um, And if we can do that, then we'll talk about theosis, the implications of it. Then, obviously, God, us, and a little resurrection on a Sunday morning. Here we go. I am coaching my six-year-old Caden's baseball team right now. Uh, Just so you know, six through nine-year-olds in our current culture are not designed to play baseball in our iPod brain, you know, era. Kids being on a field for two hours just staring at lilies, right, and like birds fly by, it's a pretty incredible process. 
Um, and one of the things I love about coaching, though, particularly kids at this age, is I was not a great athlete. I was the kid who like, grew into my body later on in life, and I remember how insecure, how difficult it was like going up to bat and just like praying to God, please let the ball hit me, because you know I'm not getting a hit. You know? It's sad but true, and look who I am today. Um, but I watched another coach even yesterday just berate these kids, just yell at them and belittle them and give me more push-ups. And I'm like, they're nine, right? And that there is sometimes just things that we're given in this world and narratives that we're given about ourselves that we can't control. There are narratives, there are things that we were given, like for me, I was giving below average athletic abilities. That's okay. I had other things going on for me. And I know that there's kids on my team who have below average athletic abilities, and that's okay. They can have fun. They can enjoy themselves. They can learn the beauty of being a part of a team. And what matters is the story that someone told you as a six-year-old with your below average athletic abilities. Is somebody empowering you, encouraging you, letting you know that you're still an amazing six-year-old human being? And why are you wearing a cup, right? <laughs> Not a lot to protect. That's true. That's scientific. This is not, yeah, it's just. Or do we tell kids a narrative that they're not quite enough yet? That if they just work harder, do we already begin to instill in people that there's a cause and effect that they can never live up to? I had this moment in the game last week where in t-ball games are an hour long and in farm league now what we're in, we're like coach pitch. Um, it's a two-hour game. So imagine you're 90 minutes into a game with six-year-olds I literally look in the outfield one day and there's a kid laying there like this. <laughs> and he's just hitting his cup. He's just <laughs> laying there. You can't make it up. And at that point, I went to the other coach and I said, we may have reached our tipping point. Yeah. <laughs> Exhibit A, yeah. Maybe we cut the game down a little bit because this is not baseball, so. And that's okay. He's a kid out there having fun. It's a kid out there who can tell another story of encouragement and empowering to. Should they be competitive later? Yeah, but the narrative that we're given is incredibly important. For most of us, the narrative went like this, that there was a God, and this God created everything. But somehow, this God did not know that there was a magical tree and a magical talking snake, my friends. And in this magical garden where there were two human beings and where all the trees did not have lines in them because, you know, they didn't age yet. And where all of these people did not have belly buttons. That, you with me, right? They didn't come around. Okay, good. Belly buttonless people, magical tree. And in this moment, in this garden, of course, like 6,000 years ago, I guess, because that's how old the earth is, that the talking snake made the magical belly buttonless people sin. And because of that, we've all been screwed. That's a very weird story if you take it literally. And here's the deal. There was probably a lots of parts of history where we didn't have bigger narratives for how the universe actually came together. And here's the other deal, that for most of Christian history, up until about 500 years ago, we actually had a very different view of what actually took place in a garden. We understood that it was a poem 
that it was allegory, that it's a metaphor talking about the human journey. And then it's over really in the last 200 years that we began to take it so literally that we wanted to fight anybody who would tell a different narrative about how we were created because somehow that challenged God. But I think there's massive implications to that story. This is why people are terrified of the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. Well, this is a weird God who created everything, but then did God create the talking snake and was that Satan and did that mess everything up? And then how did God not know this was going to happen? And why would God create all these things if God knew that God was all powerful and omniscient that these things would happen? Then isn't that weird that God did God like blind God's self in this moment not to know these things? And then after God didn't know but did know that this was going to happen, God wanted to be angry at us because we ate shellfish? I have a headache. (laughs) Or what if the story is bigger and more beautiful? Follow along with me in Genesis 3. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you. Well, that's a whole other thing we got to deal with later. Um, You must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The narrative about original sin that really became a lot bigger about 500 years ago was that sin is something that is in each and every one of us. Whether we make a choice or not, it's like in our very bones, and we are depraved. And because of that, God needed to make sure that we would die, and this is the story that we were given. But what it doesn't answer is for people who live in the 21st century and know a lot more about the universe. And the work that I think that we always want to do is not ignore new facts when they come, but ask better questions. That you come to a place like New Abbey not to be given better answers, but to ask bigger questions about your life. How does the God narrative actually work in a place like Los Angeles in 2020? Just like 500 years ago, they told Galileo that he was a heretic because he said that the earth was at, because he said that the sun was at the center of the universe, right? And they said, or at the center of our solar system. And they said, not a chance, Galileo. And they wanted to kill him for it. Is that facts and information change. And I remember being a college student and getting to hear different narratives about scriptures, being a biblical studies major and a theology major. And what I remembered in this process was that as I learned different things about the biblical narrative and about science and about history, it didn't make me challenge if God existed. It just made me think, oh, God's way more interesting than they told me. Because there's mystery in this thing. There's faith in this thing, and we're figuring it out because there's still implications for the narrative that we need to work out, and that's the thing that Jesus invites us into. Jesus is not inviting us into a literal story of the Bible where our only job is to memorize more Bible verses. Jesus is inviting us to take the Bible seriously so that we take our lives seriously, that we take our faith seriously, that we participate in this kingdom that heals and gives lives to other people, that there could be a different reality among us as human beings. That's the thing that Jesus invites us into. And the story has to get bigger because we know more things. Which brings me to hominids. I know you were asking this, my friends. 
You see, what happened two million years ago is that hominins is just the family tree that all human beings come from. And about six years ago, I was reading the Bill Gates reading list in the summer, as one does, and one of the books that he recommended was Sapiens. And I'm reading this book, Sapiens, and it's like, I came across information that I was never told as a kid. One of the pieces of information that I came across is that up to 200,000 years ago, there were six other human species on planet Earth at the same time. Did anyone else know that? For the rest of you, your minds should be blown right now. They should literally be leaking out of your head. That Homo sapiens is one branch of this. You had Neanderthals. You had this little dwarf kind of community, Homo florensis, that lived on an island in Indonesia where the waters rose up about 500,000 years ago and these human beings got trapped in an island. So the people who were smaller, who needed less calories, and the elephants on that island who needed less calories got smaller. They lived up till 13,000 years ago. They were walking on the planet the same time as us. What do you do with that, though? Do you just ignore it? Do you just be like, well, that was after Cain and Abel. <laughs> the Nephilim. You know what? You know, where do you put this thing? Well, the, the T-Rex, they couldn't put gay T-Rexes on the ark. And so God had a flood. No. What if these stories are telling us something about humanity? What if they're telling us something about the truth of what it means to be human? And that we don't need to take these things literally as the story gets bigger, but we do need to take it seriously because it has massive implications for who we are and how we live. So let's geek out just a little bit. Augustine was the first person to introduce this idea of original sin. Augustine introduced this idea of original sin 500 years after Christ. So for the first 500 years of the church, this is not how they understood Adam and Eve. Why is that? If Adam and Eve were such an important part of the biblical narrative, then how come the Old Testament never mentions them again? Except Chronicles just say, there was Adam, and then here's what's next. If the fall or original sin is the trademark of why Jesus died and why God is rescuing the world in that language, then how come the Old Testament never talks about it? The Old Testament talks a lot about the Exodus moments and that God is freeing and saving people from oppression that God is taking the most marginalized people, the Hebrews, from an oppressor, Pharaoh, and that is the salvation story of God in the Old Testament. That story is brought up again and again and again because God is saying, I want to free you from the oppressors of this world, and when you find freedom, don't you become an oppressor yourself. There's implications for that story about how we can treat one another as human beings. If you were to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how come they never bring up the story of the garden? If Jesus came to deal with something that happened with a magical tree and a talking snake back then, how come Jesus never talked about it? Don't you think that's something that Jesus would be very curious to tell his disciples? You see, guys, what was going on there? No, Jesus doesn't bring it up because Jesus came to introduce a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of reality here and now that would free human beings to see one another as human beings. That's good news. The story that you were given was bad news, and it's not even biblical. Even Orthodox Christianity 
Now you're gonna say, well, Corey, what about Romans three through eight? I know a few of you were thinking of it. That's the one part of the Bible that talks about it. That's the one part of the Bible that eventually uh, other theologians will get to and they'll have a lot of conversations about how we understand sin, how we understand Adam, and Paul was the first person to address it. But even that, that's not what Paul is doing in Romans. Paul in the book of Romans is recognizing this, that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are being jerks to one another. So he really kind of levels the playing field in the book of Romans and just does one of these. You're all sinners, right? He's trying to say, you're not better than them and you're not better than them. You all don't have it figured out. And there's a God out there who's restoring you to another reality. Because this is what's important. It's not that sin isn't real. We need to understand sin in a way that actually makes sense in our lives. Sin is not some arbitrary list that God made because God is punishing you because of belly buttonless people somewhere back in the day. Sin is the recognition that there are hurt people in this world who hurt people. We talk about that all the time at New Abbey. Sin is the recognition that there is a palpable disruption of shalom that takes place among humanity. That there is wholeness that gets broken all of the time at individual and systemic levels. That there are people in this world who are forced to steal because there are systems that have depraved them from economic realities that would lift their families up. And that's sin. It's sin that we have more money than any country on planet Earth ever, and there are people who don't have health insurance. It is sin that there is poverty in our world when we have an $800 billion defense budget. It is sin that we have the capacity to feed and give water to every single human being. And when at a systemic level we don't do that, it affects individual lives. That is the invitation that Jesus brings us into. Oh, let me bring you into a different kind of kingdom and reality where you would use all of your resources, your time, your energy, and your being to make sure that human beings are cared for so that shalom doesn't get broken. Just like beyond systems, there are individual things that we do that are hurt, that hurt other people. I spent 15 years of my life in therapy and being part of a 12-step sexual addiction program to recently process in my life being molested as a six-year-old. That somebody else used power over my life and exposed me to things that I'm not ready for. I can't blame all of that, that, what happened there for the rest of my life, but it did something to me. And as I was hurting, as I am dealing with intimacy issues, as I deal with abandonment issues from my mother, how do you think I tried fulfilling it in this world? By trying to take what was never given to me. We all do this in our own ways. If you have an alcoholic parent, you're the most predisposed to being an alcoholic. And it's not about the alcohol. It's about the thing behind the thing behind the thing, what we would call sin, the disruption of shalom that is so messed with your life that causes hurt in you, that allows you to hurt other people. Jesus came to restore that. The story of a garden is not a literal story. It's a story of saying, what if we all fall? What if we all can't figure it out? What if even when we do fall, there is a recognition that there's consequences to choices that we make? And what if the story is not one of rescue? 
It's not a story that you've been so bad and so horrible that God needs to fix all of this. What if it's a story of restoration? What if it's a story that doesn't start in Genesis 3 with people in a garden, but it's a story that starts in Genesis 1 where God said, you're all made in my image, every last one of you. And that Jesus comes into the world to remind you of your goodness, not to rescue you from your badness. There are very different implications of that story. And you might say, Corey, this sounds kind of crazy. Then you're arguing with Christian orthodoxy for a thousand years. Because for the first thousand years of the church, the church's primary theology was theosis. Theosis is this fancy word that we are becoming into the likeness of God. That the early church mothers and fathers already knew that the reality of Jesus is reminding you that you're already made in the image of God. But the kingdom of God is here to transform you and heal you so that you'll live into the likeness of God. Those are two different things. But what different implications for us about how we understand God and how we understand Jesus? And so Augustine, when he comes up with this idea of original sin, and by the way, if you're really wanting to nerd out and get bored, you can go read some Augustine. And dude had Freudian issues with his mom. (laughs) Big ones. And so it's no wonder that he got tripped out about Eve in a garden because he had abandonment issues. But even the Eastern Orthodox Church, for a thousand years, the church was one. They didn't agree with Augustine. They agreed with theosis. It wasn't until the church split in the Great Schism in 1054, everybody's favorite year, my friends, (laughs) that after that, the Western church began to move away from theosis, and the Western church moved more towards ideas of atonement and how bad we are. And Anselm is the first person who writes this big document called Curedus Homo to understand who humanity is. And in Anselm's world of a feudal system with lords, lords had all of this power. And there was discrepancies of power in that world. And so what would happen is if a servant hurt the lord, the servant would be punished 10 times greater than if a lord hurt a lord, right? And that's where we begin to get this theology. And that theology worked in the Middle Ages because the Middle Ages was a scary place. So you needed order and control to keep things together. So the theology, the sociology of the day impacted the theology of how we understand God. And in that moment, what began to happen is we begin to tell people, well, imagine that if a servant does something wrong against their Lord, how much they should be punished. Well, imagine if we do something against God, how much we should be punished. And then all of a sudden, people found more Augustine, and they're like, he was on to something. But even 100 years after Anselm, there's a guy named Peter Abelard who comes up with another idea called the moral exemplar theory, which challenges the satisfaction understanding of atonement. The satisfaction understanding of atonement that Anselm created was, you're incredibly bad, and God needs to deal with how bad you are, and that's why Jesus bleeds out. Abelard comes along and says, that's not what we've talked about for the first thousand years of the church. Jesus comes to remind us of love. Jesus comes to show us a life of love. That Jesus came and Jesus was betrayed, hurt, right, punished, even by enemies, and Jesus forgave them. And then Jesus goes to the cross, and that's what Jesus says, follow me to. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to the cross to be punished for how bad you are. Jesus says, you'll be betrayed, you'll be hurt, people will mess with you in your life, you will sin, and you have to learn to forgive even your enemies, and that's the path of suffering. 
The path of suffering for Lent is a reminder of that kind of Jesus, that even you too will go through this, but what if when you go to your cross, you don't unleash pain back on the world? The implications are massively different. And then 500 years ago, the reformers. We got a lot of good Protestants in this room, right? I was one too, until I begin to read the other 1,500 years of church history. The reformers have a lot of good things to say, but they also have a pretty dim view of humanity at this point. Calvin will say things like human beings are just piles of garbage. Luther will give this beautiful analogy that human beings are like horseshit on the road, but the grace of God is like white snow that covers the horseshit. I, I feel closer to Jesus too. Thank you so much for telling me that. And then the implications of that is eventually we get American theology, we get rapture theology, we get fundamentalism, and we get this puritanical idea where anything with the body, anything with the flesh is evil. And we begin to separate people. And how many of us in here have been messed up by the implications of that theology? That your body, that your sexuality was not good. And that God could not handle it. And there's a massive game of telephone that took place, mainly for American Christians, as we were the ones who really took the power of that theology and moved it to its logical conclusions. And yet there's been an Eastern Orthodox Church and other branches of Christianity for 2,000 years who never accepted those realities. So when people say, you, are you following the Bible? Yeah, which one are you reading? That there's a bigger narrative out there that God invites us into. And let's talk about the incredible implications of it. If you really believe that God needed to punish Jesus in that way to make God feel better about you, then what you're accepting is that God is incredibly violent. And is it no wonder that the Christian church has propagated so much violence in this world? Is it any wonder that after the Reformation that it was white, powerful men who created this theology and it was those same white, powerful men who believed that they were predestined, that God chose them to save them, and that those are the people that went out to peoples of color and raped and pillaged and colonized those worlds because they were saved and they were teaching them a bigger truth? What are the implications of the things that we believe? If we believe that God gave us all of the privilege and that it's our job to go take from over there, if that's how we understand God, that will mess you up. But what if that's not even the story that the church believed for the first thousand years of its history? What if that's not even the story that half of the church doesn't even accept to this day? What if that's just the story that a lot of American Christians, because they watched way too much Kirk Cameron, understood? <laughs> that there's a bigger narrative and a bigger God out there who's encouraging for us, that's got a better story. And then I think about what does this mean for your life? How does your life look different if each day you wake up and you recognize that I'm made in the image of God and every day I want to be more like who God is? That God is not trying to rescue me from how horrible that I am, that God is trying to restore my understanding of who I am. How does that implication change everything for who you are? How does that change how you treat other people? What if you looked at every human being and said, God wants to restore you and restore you and restore you? What if you looked at the life of Jesus and said, that's all that Jesus was doing? Jesus would go to the person who had demons. Jesus would go to the woman caught in adultery. Jesus would go to the Samaritan. Jesus would go to people after people after people and restore them to who they truly were. 
Because Jesus knew if you can see the most marginalized people in our culture as human, then you'll see yourself as human. And that's a different kind of kingdom and reality for this world. What reality are we participating in? Are you participating in a reality where you think that you are bad and depraved and something is wrong with you and that God can never be satisfied with who you are? And if not, then this God has to do horrific things to make this God satisfied. Or are you participating in a story of a kingdom reality of Jesus where it matters about Jesus's humanity? It matters about Jesus's life. It matters that the stories that Jesus has for us, that those are the things that we're following. We're following a reality where we love others and we love God in a different way because that's what brings healing into this world. That's what we come to remind ourselves of every week. The starting points are completely different and the implications and the ending points are completely different as well. Is there a God who's restoring your life or are you still living in a world where God needs to rescue you from, you how, from how horrible that you are? Would you find those same three or four people around you and answer this question? What area of your life is being restored? Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.